going to be, so you can turn there in your Bibles, and uh, looking forward to going through this passage together. Mark chapter 3. Let's have a word of prayer again before we jump into the text. God, we ask today that you would use your spirit to speak to our hearts. God, help us to understand the truths that are being proclaimed here by Jesus. Help us to understand how they apply to our lives today. God, I pray that that as we go through this text, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but as Jesus wraps up this section of teaching, God, that, that we would be doers of the word, that we would be the ones who do the will of the Father in heaven. God, we thank you again for your kindness towards us. Use this today for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the questions that is being answered uh, throughout the Gospels is, who is this Jesus? Uh, since Jesus came on the scene, uh, it's, it's no, no question or no, no wonder that, that there has been much confusion about him from every side. But if we back up even to portions of, of Jesus' life where Mark doesn't touch, we can think back to when Jesus was a young man and his parents took him to the temple. And uh, as they were there in Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph said, it's time to pack up and go home. And they started to make their way home, uh, thinking that Jesus was with his friends, another group of people. And they realized he wasn't there. They got a little nervous as any parent would. And they started to go back to Jerusalem to find their son. And when they finally found him, Jesus was in the temple. He was teaching the scribes. He was, he was uh, explaining the law. And when they pulled Jesus aside, they said, Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus' response to them was simply this, I must be about my father's business. And Luke records for us that Mary and Joseph had no idea what Jesus meant by that. They were confused by their son who was likely around 12 years old. And as they were confused then, that confusion continued to grow as Jesus went on and lived his life. As time went on, the, the crowds, the religious teachers, the governmental officials, and even his closest friends were confused about who Jesus was and what he was doing. And every time it seemed that they thought they were getting a handle on what Jesus was about, Jesus would do something that would blow their mind, something that would confuse them. And I imagine for them, it had to be frustrating on some level to not be able to figure out uh, who Jesus was and what it was he was doing. The passage before us is rich, and I think there's much more in this passage than just meets the eye in a cursory reading. And so if you think you have this nailed down, uh, my prayer is that we would pray together that God would show us the truth that would change us to be like the person of Jesus Christ. Because isn't that the point of preaching in the life of a believer? That God would use his word, that the spirit would apply the word so that we could become like Jesus himself. Mark, as we've said, is very fast-moving, and we could have broken this passage up into three different sections, really, but as I read it over and over again, uh, I was convinced that they needed to go together because they're really illustrating some great truths that will answer the question, who is this Jesus? And so as we go through this lengthy text, I pray that, that we would seek the Spirit's help to understand what exactly is being said here. The big idea is this, answering the question, who is Jesus, will equip us 
encourage us and convict us. When we fully understand who he is, our hearts will find a stability that nothing else will bring. So as we walk through this text today, my prayer is that God would open our eyes to see the truth. And as we see the truth, I pray that we would then, through the power of the Spirit, live that truth for the honor and the glory of the one who sent his son to be the sacrifice for sins. I'm going to warn you up front, we've got a long introduction. And as an introduction, we're going to go through all of the text and just kind of describe, explain what's going on there. And so you can really, if, unless you take other notes, you can set your notes aside and just listen. And then as we get towards the end of the message, it'll be really brief, but five things um, that I think will be helpful to us as we think about answering the question, who is Jesus? And so let's walk through the text and see what's going on in Mark chapter 3. In verse 20, the Bible says, And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. If you remember, in the previous verses, Jesus had just got done revealing to his disciples that he was going to send them out to preach, to do great miracles and great wonders. And all of those wonders and miracles were to support or, or validate this idea that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world. As that scene wraps up, uh, Mark just continues on. And we, we know that Mark doesn't, or all the gospel writers really, don't necessarily go in a sequential order in the events that they give us, but really they're writing for a specific purpose. And so as Mark picks up the life of Christ again in verse number 20, he's relaying to us that the crowds again were so great around Jesus that he and the disciples couldn't even take, a take time to eat bread. They were so busy, they were so consumed with doing the work of the ministry that they couldn't even find time to have a meal. And as I was thinking through this, I'm like, I don't think that that's, that's been true in my life, but I think that's been true in every mother's life, right? You can't get time to eat yourself because you're always taking care of everybody else. And that's basically what was going on here. They were so consumed with the ministry. They were so consumed with meeting people's needs. They were so consumed with helping people out that they didn't even time to have time to eat bread. Well, in verse 21, when the friends of Jesus heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. Well, what things had they heard of? Well, what things have taken place up until this point in Mark chapter 3? We've seen people that, that were, uh, had, had physical ailments healed. We've seen people that were possessed with demons healed. We, we've seen Jesus do some great teachings and also give some pretty sharp rebukes. And when Jesus' friends, other versions would say family, don't get hung up on that. The point is those who were close to Jesus, when they saw what was going on and when they didn't understand what Jesus was doing, they went to pull Jesus away from the tasks that he was completing because he was beside himself. That, that idea in the Greek means to be mentally displaced. They didn't just think Jesus was, was uh, doing things that they couldn't understand. They thought Jesus was doing things that he didn't even know he was doing, that he had some mental disease that made him think he was indeed the very son of God. And so when the friends or family of Jesus heard of this, they went to lay hold on him, to grab him, to seize him, to pull him away from what he was doing because they didn't understand what was going on. Now, if you remember later on in the Gospels, when Jesus is describing to the disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die on the cross and all of these things are going to take place, Peter tells Jesus, not so, right? And what does Jesus tell Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. And so these people, without even knowing it, were seeking to disrupt and interrupt 
the plan of God in the life of Jesus. But Jesus was so dead set on completing the will of the Father that he didn't allow those who had great influence in his life to influence him away from the things that God wanted him to do. Now, could that be a lesson for us here today? That we don't get influenced away from the things that God desires us to do by those around us. That we take seriously the will of God. And I think this, think this fits in well with the, the last verse in Mark chapter 3, as Jesus talks about identifying with those who do the will of the Father. Well, as this whole scene is taking place, and as Jesus' friends or family were trying to take him away from where they found him, all of a sudden the scribes came down from Jerusalem with, with words of, of concern towards Christ, and they said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils casteth he out devils. Now, if we're familiar with the religious crowd up until this point, we know that they often weren't silent when they had an accusation to make, right? As they came down from Jerusalem, it was with the intention not only of discrediting the work that Jesus was doing uh, to, to Jesus himself, but also their desire was to pull people away from Jesus, to say, don't follow this man because the things that he is doing are being done through the power of Satan. Scribes and the Pharisees, as Matthew relays to us, were involved in this as well, were really quite bold in their assertion that Jesus was indeed empowered by the devil to do these things. This term, Beelzebub, is not one that we use often today, but it has to do with this idea of a lord of evil spirits. It was originally used and associated with a Philistine and a Canaanite god, but then it came kind of, became kind of a slur towards uh, demons in, in general, and, and that's what the Pharisees were saying in this moment, that he has a demon, and by the power of demons, he's casting out demons. Now, if somebody came and said that to you, how would that make you feel? Somebody came and said that to somebody you loved, what would you think? Obviously, there would be some great concern there. And I always love to see how Jesus responds in these situations. Verse number 23 says, And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? He called them unto him. Does that show a heart of compassion in our Savior? That instead of just blasting them or, or, or showing where they were wrong in a mean-hearted way, uh, Jesus really calls them to himself so that he can teach them, so he can point out the error of their ways, so that they can correct what is wrong in their lives. Did Jesus love the Pharisees and the scribes? He did. And his desire was that they would not continue in the error of their way but that they would get their hearts right with God, that they would understand that Jesus was the Messiah, that they would be saved. And so Jesus calls them, and he begins to teach them in parables, and he asks the question, how can Satan cast out Satan? I mean, when you think about that, it, for any amount of time, you realize that these scribes and the Pharisees were way off base. They were way off course. And by Jesus' question alone, as he starts this conversation with them, he's revealing how far off they truly were. This question that Jesus asks shows the foolishness of their accusation towards him, and it leaves room for him to address the seriousness of the accusation in the end of his teaching. And so how can Satan cast out Satan? To sum it up, Jesus is going to go on to say that he can't and he wouldn't. 
that he can't do it. Satan wouldn't cast out Satan because it would go against what Satan wanted to accomplish. And really, Satan couldn't do that unless God permitted him to do that. And so Jesus' teaching is very clear. He goes into three examples to try to break this down in a way that people would easily understand it. In verse 24, after he asks the question, can Satan cast out Satan? He says, and if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So illustration one is the simple illustration of a divided kingdom. Think of something like a civil war, where brother rises up against brother, where family rises up against family, and they're divided in their desires, they're divided in their efforts, they're divided in their goals. Jesus says that kingdom is eventually going to fall because the infighting is going to be so bad that nothing is going to be accomplished, and if something is accomplished, it's not going to be worth anything in the end. And so a divided kingdom, this this is the words of Christ, it cannot stand. These words are attributed to many other people. If you look up this quote uh, on the famous Googler machine. But who, who really says these words? Jesus does. That a divided kingdom cannot stand. A kingdom that is divided against itself will not last. Simple illustration. Jesus says, if Satan is trying to cast out Satan, it's not going to work. In verse 25, he brings the, the point a little closer to home. And he says, if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now, who's ever faced any troubles within the home where you understand what Jesus is saying here? Wow, nobody's being honest. Come on, people. You guys have never had an argument in your house before? That's impressive. That's what Jesus is saying. That when those in the house are divided against themselves, there's going to be massive amounts of trouble. Why do you think that our world is filled, and and if, if you have been divorced, don't think I'm I'm being hard on you. But why do you think the world is filled with so many people who have been divorced? Because families are going in different directions. Because they're divided. They're they're moving in the opposite way that they, they should operate in order to work together. So Jesus says, if a house be divided, that house cannot stand. We could bring this even into the house of God. If a church is divided, how long is that church going to last? They may have a building, And they may have a few people attend on Sundays, but if they're not united in their efforts, nothing good is going to be accomplished. And Jesus says here that if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Fighting parents and disobedient children causes a house to be divided, and and this division brings the opposite of peace, it brings chaos, and nothing good is accomplished when a house is divided against itself. In verse 26, Jesus gives the third illustration. He says, if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. If Satan was consumed with fighting himself, is Satan going to accomplish the things that Satan wants to accomplish? No. And so the illustrations are very simple. They're very straightforward. Jesus is saying, you're accusing me of doing the things that I'm doing by having a spirit of a demon inside of me, but your accusation doesn't make any sense because if I have Satan in me and yet I'm over, overthrowing or undoing the works that Satan has done, then, then none of this is going to have a positive end. None of this is going to come to any good conclusion. So a divided kingdom and a divided house and Satan rising up against himself all leads to the same end and nothing is going to be accomplished out of these things. 
And then in verse 27, Jesus begins to teach a little more on this idea. He says, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Now, we have to make something clear. Jesus is not telling us how to break into people's houses and take their stuff, right? Just, just if you're wondering, that's not what Jesus is saying. But what is Jesus saying? He's giving another illustration to help people understand what is going on here. Jesus says, if you're going to break in somebody's house and take their stuff, what's the first thing you have to do? You have to bind up the strong man of that house so that he can't prohibit you from doing the things that you want to do. And what's Jesus saying? Jesus is basically saying, as the one who's come to bind the strong man, the works that I'm doing now are proof that I have the power to bind him. And I'm going to spoil his goods. The things that he has accomplished, the works that he has completed, the tasks that he has performed, the people that he has overtaken. Jesus said, I am the one who is going to come in and bind the strong man so that they can be delivered from the oppression that they're facing in a spiritual way. Jesus says, I'm the one who has come to free all men. And so I'm not on Satan's side. I'm not empowered by Satan to do these things. I'm doing the opposite of what Satan wants done. Did Satan want people freed from demonic oppression? Absolutely not. Not in in one sense would Satan want that. And so by Jesus coming in and undoing these things, taking back ground that was rightfully his, he's revealing that he has the one, or that he has the power to bind the strong man, that nobody else could do this, but he can do that, that he came to set the captives free, and not just to give a temporary freedom, but to give eternal freedom. If we think back to Mark 2, when the four friends brought their friend to Jesus and they lowered him down through the roof, What's the first thing that Jesus said to that man? Your sins are forgiven. Who has the power to forgive sins? The Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. And if you're struggling with this idea that I have the power to forgive sins, oh, by the way, also, man that hasn't walked in many, many years, take up your bed and walk. And what did the man do? He got up from the ground, he took up his bed and walked, and Jesus was revealing that, yes, he had the power over the physical needs that the world had, but ultimately, in a greater way, he had the power over the spiritual needs, over the spiritual oppression that the world was facing. He is the one who could come in and bind the strong man. And when he is bound, he will spoil the things that the strong man has done. Friend, do you understand today that if you are a believer, then Jesus has spoiled the work of the strong man in your life? That he's bound the strong man on your behalf so that you could be free, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have hope of of, of life in this life, but also hope of life in the life to come. Jesus' teaching here is not just a a shallow illustration of what he has the ability to do, but it's much, much deeper. Jesus is not just saying, I have power over the physical needs, but he wants them to understand that he has power over the spiritual needs, and it's the spiritual needs that he really came to address. So Jesus teaches in verse 27, and that teaching really continues in verse 28, and he begins to address the things that uh, that he was accused of. He says, Verily I say unto you, all sin shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. This is good news, just so you know. When Jesus says all sins shall be forgiven of men, even blasphemies, do you realize that he's speaking directly to us? 
That because of Jesus, because of the power that he has, he will forgive all sins, the sins that, that people know about and the sins that people don't know about. Remember, he's the one who has come in and bound the strong man so that we can be free. And when that accuser comes and brings up the things that we've done in the past, what does Jesus say? I've already freed you from that thing. You're no longer in bondage to it. Jesus says, all sins shall be forgiven of men. And as he dives into this teaching, he's letting them know that he is the great forgiver of sins. And this was good news for them, but it's also good news for us still today. All sins shall be forgiven. And friend, we could stop right there and sing a song and go on our way, and that should be enough to make our hearts rejoice, because that means that if we have trusted in Christ, then we too have been forgiven. Who has sins in their life that nobody else in this room would know about? We all do. But aren't you glad that even in his all-knowing mind, when God knew about these things, he still chose to forgive you of those things through the power of Jesus? All sins shall be forgiven. Because I'm the one who has come in and bound the strong man, the, the accuser of the brethren, because I'm the one who has the power to overcome sin and death and hell, I have the ability to forgive all men of their sins. Now, we need to understand what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that all the sins of all the men will be forgiven, because that would be a universal salvation. And that's certainly not what the Bible teaches. But what Jesus is saying is that all men who come to him will have their sins forgiven. All men who recognize the work that he has accomplished, the deed that he has done as he would go to the cross and die in the place of sinful men, all who put their faith in Jesus through repentance will have their sins forgiven. And I don't know about you, I'm thankful that God doesn't hold any particular sins over our heads after we're saved. In verse 29, though, Jesus continues on, and it seems in some sense that he's contradicting himself. We have to understand that the tone of verse 28 would be speaking to those who would come seeking for forgiveness with a heart of repentance, having their hearts softened by the Spirit and the Word of God, that, that their sins will be forgiven if they come to Him. But in verse 29, Jesus says, but, and whenever you see but in the Bible, you need to pay attention to what's going on here, because typically some very powerful and deep truths are being spoken, and in this case, that is the case with what Jesus says. He says, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Jesus, you just said all sins can be forgiven, and now you're saying that those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit are in danger of eternal damnation, that, that their sins won't be forgiven. This took a turn, right? It went from a positive to a negative. And honestly, this is one of those verses that if you read 10 different commentaries, you're going to get 10 different answers on what's being said here. I'm going to try to sum it up in the way that I think Jesus meant it and how it applies to us today. So Jesus is talking about something specific here, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that if you go to Matthew's gospel and you read the parallel account, Jesus said, even the blasphemy of the Son of Man, who is Christ, will be forgiven, but not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
And so we have to understand that, that what this thing is, is something very specific. Many people believe that this is not a sin that can even be committed today, that it was something specific for the time of Christ, because when Jesus was on the earth, he was doing such visible works of God and, and freeing men from the, the burdens of the enemy that this can't be uh, committed in this day. I'm not convinced that that's the case. I think the sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can be committed today. But I do think it's a very specific sin. We have to understand that this is not just rejection of the Spirit of God, because if that was the case, how many of us would not be able to receive forgiveness? All of us. If we think back to Peter, Peter denied Christ three times, and yet Peter went on to preach one of the greatest sermons that led to 5,000 people being saved, right? We could think of Paul, who admittedly said that he was before a blasphemer. And yet on the road to Damascus, he was cleansed from his sins. And so what is this thing? It's, it's not a, a normal sin if we categorize sin in that way. Some have taught that the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit is the idea of divorce or adultery or committing suiciding, suicide or backsliding. And friend, understand this. If you have sat under teaching that says that those are the sins that blaspheme the Spirit of God, you have sat under lies. Because all of those sins that I just said are sins that are addressed in the word of God that people receive forgiveness from. So those aren't the sins that Jesus is speaking of. Teachings like that must be struck down because they're, they bring unneeded fear and unwarranted burdens on the lives of those who believe them. And so what is this? Well, if we understand the text before us, what did the, Pharisees, or the scribes and the Pharisees, if you look in Matthew's gospel, what did they come saying? That Jesus was doing the works that he did through the power of who? Satan. And we've got to back up a little bit. Because when we think of the baptism of Christ, uh, what came on Jesus at the baptism? The Spirit. Immediately after Jesus was baptized, where did he go and who was he ministered to by? He went to the wilderness and the Spirit ministered to him. And so we understand that Jesus lived on this earth a life that was empowered by the Spirit of God. And this is something that is hard for us to grasp sometimes because we know that Jesus was God. Why did he need to be empowered by the Spirit of God? Well, because when Jesus lived on this earth, he was both God and man. And Jesus living in in subjection to the Spirit of God is not just a good example for us to follow, but it's the, the, the point that, that God is making in doing this is showing how Jesus was able to do the things that he did. And so as we make our way through Mark's gospel and we see Jesus do all these wonderful things for the Pharisees and the scribes to come down and say that he's doing these things through the power of demons, Jesus then goes on to teach that ascribing the power of Jesus to demonic forces is a sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says those who commit this sin are in danger of what? Eternal damnation. Matthew's gospel says this is a sin that won't be forgiven. This is a sin that, that can't be undone. And so that brings us pause, right? That, that asks or causes us to more question. And one of the questions is, does this still happen today? As I said, there's much debate, and many believe that it was specific to this era because the, the demonic activity in Jesus' day, many believe, was likely much higher 
than it is at this time because Satan was working overtime in that day to, to undo the works of Christ. And I tend to believe that could be true, that, that there was a lot more demonic activity. Does that mean that there's no demonic activity today? I think believing that would also be a lie, right? There's, there's plenty of demonic activity. But as Jesus was on this earth and, and the scribes and the Pharisees attributed his power to Satan, Jesus says that believing this or ascribing to this position or, or promoting this position leads to the sin of blasphemy that cannot be forgiven. And so can it still happen today? I think it can. But I think it's something that's very intentional. I think it's something that when somebody does it, they're dead set on rejecting the work of the Spirit of God in their lives. It's, it's not just a casual, I don't believe in Jesus, but it's saying that Jesus was empowered by Satan himself. And while we don't fully understand or, or maybe we can't fully comprehend everything that's, that's encompassing uh, in this idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I, I think that, that we do need to believe that it is something that can happen, but there's a couple other things we need to believe as well. First off, can a Christian do this? Well, can a Christian be unforgiven? No. And so I don't think blasphemy of the Spirit is something that a Christian can do. Why? Because God has already forgiven a believer. Also, if you're here today and you're not a believer and you're concerned that you've done this, I would likely say that you haven't done this. Why? Because your heart is still sensitive to this idea that Jesus might be who he says he is. Who was Jesus addressing in this moment? He was addressing the religious crowd who was dead set, as we saw last chapter, on killing Jesus. They wanted to destroy him. They wanted to wipe him off the face of the earth. They wanted nothing to do with his message. They believed that he was not sent from God, but rather he was empowered by the enemy. He was empowered by Satan himself. We have to remember that even in this passage, Jesus doesn't say that the scribes have done this. He says they're in danger of doing this depending on if they turned away from that belief, if they repented of their sin, they could still be forgiven. But if they died in this position that they believe Jesus did works that were empowered by Satan, then what does Jesus tell them? That their fate is eternal damnation. And so friend, this idea of the blasphemy of the Spirit is something that I think is good for us to understand. It's good for us to understand what it does mean and what it doesn't mean. It's good for us to understand that as children of God, that we're not in danger of committing this sin because we have already been forgiven. Why? Because we have believed that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And that's the exact opposite of what the Pharisees and the scribes were saying. And friends, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, I would ask you to consider this idea of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. I would ask you to consider today putting your faith and trust in Christ alone as the one who can forgive your sins. Truthfully, it makes all the difference. So Jesus tells them, it's not by Satan that I'm casting out Satan. It's not Beelzebub that is empowering me to do the things that I'm doing. And if you believe that, you're in danger of eternal damnation. But rather, I am doing the works of the Father. If you think back to the passage that I mentioned earlier in Luke 2, when Mary and Joseph found Jesus in the temple, he was doing the works of the Father then, and he was doing the works of the Father in Mark 3. And understand, church, he is still doing the works of the Father today as he serves as our great high priest. And so it's to Jesus we look for hope. It's to Jesus we look to be our Savior. 
As we continue on in the passage, in verses 31 through 35, we see that Jesus, as he's in this scenario, likely still in this scenario, in verse 31, there came then his brethren and mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. It's interesting that those who were closest to Jesus from a family way were not involved in the things that Jesus was doing in this moment. It says they were standing without. You know what that kind of insinuates? That they were embarrassed of Jesus. That's why I think back in verse 20 where it talks about the friends of Jesus, I honestly think it was probably his family involved in that as well. That They didn't want to get close enough to him so that people would associate them with him but they, wanted, they, they loved him, right? They wanted to, to rescue him. And so they were trying to pull him away from the things that he was doing so they wouldn't be an embarrassment to him, but also so that he wouldn't get killed because they understood that he was on the verge of getting killed. So they loved him, but they didn't want to associate with him. And as Jesus was teaching, as he was healing, as he was helping, we see that his family comes, and as they're standing without, as they're standing outside, they're calling unto him, and they sent for him. And in verse 32, as the multitude was seated around, they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. The people were confused. If, if anybody had a backstage pass into the life and ministry of Jesus, who would it have been? His family. If there was a crowd, do you think Jesus would have said, hey, get my mom up here, right? This is the woman who gave birth to me. She, she raised me. She taught me. But where were they constantly? Outside. They were outside the circle. They were outside of what Jesus was doing because, again, they were embarrassed and they were fearful. So as Jesus is teaching, somebody comes in and says, hey, Jesus, your mom and your, they're your brothers, they're outside and they want you to come to them. And Jesus says in verse 33, he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brethren? This question would have been confusing to those who brought word that his mother and brothers were outside. They, they would have again said, Jesus, what are you talking about here, right? Is this another parable? Are you trying to, to get us to understand some deep truth? And, and in truth, he was. He wanted them to understand a valuable lesson in this moment. And in verse 34, he looked round about on them which sat about him and he said behold my mother and my brethren if they were confused before they're even more confused now they the 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 servant came in and said your parent your mom and your brothers are outside and jesus says behold my mom and my my siblings are right here now why would jesus say that it makes it very clear in verse 35 for whosoever shall do the will of god the same as my brother and my sister and my mother now, we could read this and say, man, Jesus was mean to his family. No. Jesus was teaching both in the room and outside of the room a very valuable lesson. We know that Jesus loved his family. Who was it that Jesus told John to take care of from the cross? Take care of my mother, right? He, he loved her. Mary followed him around. She wasn't involved maybe in the way that Jesus wanted him to be, but he loved her. We also know that Jesus loved his brothers, two specifically that we know about who went on later to write portions of the New Testament, James and Jude. He loved them. But in this moment, they were against him. In this moment, they were trying to pull him away from what the Father wanted him to do. And Jesus said, I've got to draw the line somewhere. And so my family, in some regards, 
are those who will do the will of my Father in heaven. Friends, this is a very valuable lesson for us to understand today. And we don't get it as much in our culture, but many places around the world when people give their lives to Christ, they are rejected by their family. And do you know who becomes their family? Their brothers and sisters in Christ. Who is my brother? Who is my mother? Who are my siblings? None other than the ones who have committed with me to live for Christ regardless of what the cost. Jesus knew that there was a cost in all of this. He knew that his words would be misunderstood. He knew that his words would be hard to hear. But isn't it Jesus himself that said, if you're not willing to forsake your mother and your father and your brethren, then you can't follow me? And again, I don't think that Jesus is forsaking them in this moment, but he is teaching a lesson for those who would follow him that there may come a day when this has to become a reality where you choose Jesus more than you choose your family, where you choose following Christ more than you choose pleasing even the ones that have given birth to you. Now, this doesn't, again, mean that we reject them or that we're mean to them or that we slander them. It just means that our greatest obligation is to do the will of the Father. Friend, I would ask us to consider that question today. There there are some of you in here that have faced issues in your family because you have chosen to follow Christ. Understand, you're in good company. That's what Jesus faced. And maybe there's others of us in the room today who are following Christ, but when there comes time to make a decision, we choose family over Christ. Can I tell us today, if that's us, then we're in bad company. That Jesus would not condone that type of behavior. So all that was the introduction. Everyone good? Now I've got five things I want to pull out briefly that hopefully will be a help to us as we seek to understand who Jesus is. That's what we started with, that the Gospels reveal to us who Jesus is. They, they describe to us in a way that, that we couldn't figure out on our own who Jesus is. And I, I pray that as we walk through these five things briefly, that our hearts would be encouraged, that, that we would be strengthened, that we'd allow the Spirit of God to convict us if we need convicting, and that we would more fully cleave to Christ. Why? Because he is worthy of us cleaving to. He's not empowered by Satan. He's not uh, influenced by those who want to pull him away from the work of the Father, but rather he's dead set on completing the work that God had set him to do. And we need to understand some things about Jesus that are helpful to us. The first thing is this. Jesus identifies with the needy. Jesus didn't identify with the scribes and the Pharisees that came rebuking him for doing the things that he was doing. Jesus didn't identify in verses 20 and 21, even with his friends and family who wanted to pull away from the situation he found himself in. What did Jesus want to do? He wanted to be with those who needed his help. What did Jesus say earlier in Mark? I haven't come as a physician for those who have no need of a physician. I've come for the sick and for the needy and for the outcast, for those who have no hope and are fully aware of that truth. That's who Jesus is choosing to identify with in this moment. And he would forsake even eating a meal himself to help those out who were in need. Friend, do you understand that basically what we're getting at here is that if you're a believer today, then Jesus has identified with you. Why? 
because you and I are the needy. We're the, the needy who Jesus came to be with. Why? So that he could show us the truth of eternal life that comes through his name alone. We are the needy that have no hope apart from him. We are the ones who, if left to ourselves, would only cause chaos and destruction in our life and in the lives of others. But when Jesus steps into our world, everything changes. Think back earlier in Mark's gospel, after Jesus had got done healing and and helping and doing all these things late at night or early in the morning, depending on how you read the text, where did Jesus find himself again? Surrounded by people who were in need of his help. And so what does that mean? It means that we don't get to write people off saying they're not worthy of Jesus, because who are the ones that are truly worthy of Jesus? None other than the ones who understand that they are needy people and that without him they have no hope. So Jesus identifies with the needy. Anybody here ever been around a needy person? Like, man, that person is needy. That's what Jesus' life was. And who did he choose to stay with? Those people. Who did he choose to minister to? Those people. And if Jesus identifies with those people, friend, can I ask us, what are we doing with those people in our lives? Is there more fun things to do? Certainly, right? There there are some people that just take, 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 and never give. But those were the people that Jesus hung out with. I I was convicted of that this morning. I got a text from somebody, and I had a bad attitude when I got the text. But what should my heart be? Help those who are in need. To be with those who have needs to show them the love of Christ, and that's exactly what Christ did here. So Jesus identifies with the needy, and that means he identifies with us because we are a needy people. The second thing, Jesus identifies as the one who binds the strong man. As Jesus gives this illustration of of Satan working against Satan, how a kingdom would not stand like that, how a house would not stand like that, Jesus then goes into the teaching that if you're if you're going to overthrow the strong man uh, or or take the strong man's stuff, you got to first bind up the strong man. And we've already spent a little bit of time on this, but understand, Jesus is the strong man binder. That the only reason you and I have hope in this world is not because we are good people, because we're religious people, because we have life figured out, but it's because Jesus stepped in on our behalf and bound the strong man so that we could be free. You know what so much of Christianity teaches? Just try harder in your Christian life. You know what trying harder gets you? If you accomplish anything, it gets you a whole lot of pride thinking, look what I've done. But you know what most often it leads to? Frustration and failure. Frustration and failure. So so what do we do in these moments? Well, we've already established that we're the needy people, so who do we continually trust in? The one who has bound the strong man. Anybody struggle with a, a secret sin that maybe nobody else knows about? Raise your hand. Be honest. Come on, be honest. Who are you trusting to give you power over that sin? I, I can figure it out on my own. I can handle it. No, I don't need to ask for help from anybody. Friend, trust Jesus. Run to Jesus. Doesn't he say in Matthew 11, come unto me all you that labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest? How can he give rest? Because he has bound the strong man on our behalf so that we can be free from the penalty of sin. Jesus is the strong man binder. He's the one who does what we cannot do so that we can have a freedom that without him we would never experience. 
So who is this Jesus? He identifies with the needy. And he identifies as the one who, who binds the strong man. Number three, who is this Jesus? He identifies as the great forgiver. We've already seen that Jesus has the power to forgive sins in the Gospel of Mark. And here he speaks as an authority on that subject in verses 28 and 29. As Jesus speaks of all sins being forgiven, he wasn't speaking of somebody who simply had a knowledge that sins were able to to be forgiven, but he was speaking as the one who would ultimately forgive sins through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus wasn't saying, if you try hard enough, maybe you'll be forgiven. No, he identifies as the one who actually forgives sins. Is that powerful to you today? That, That Jesus, as he's speaking to these people, was relaying to them that he was indeed the one who could forgive sins. And friend, understand this, when he forgives sins, we are freed from those sins. John 8, 36 says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be what? Free indeed. Not free with some some stipulations or regulations. Not free with some asterisks and and clauses that you have to commit or keep to. It's not free with probation. As long as you keep up doing what I've told you to do, you'll remain free. If you've been freed by Jesus, then you are free. And so I would ask us today, why then do we not live in that freedom? Why do we allow ourselves to be burdened down with things that Christ has already set us free from? Why do we allow ourselves to be entangled with things that Jesus says we no longer have to be entangled with? And so in verses 28 and 29, Jesus identifies as the great forgiver. Number four, and I told you we'd go quick, Jesus identifies as the just judge. As Jesus could speak about forgiving sins, that would also make sense then that he could speak about the reality of eternal damnation. In our world today, there's this this thought of, well, we just don't need to speak about hell and, and just speak about forgiveness. But friend, if we never know of the consequence of sin, we'll never know that we have a need to be forgiven of that sin. And so as Jesus speaks of the idea of eternal damnation here, we understand that he is the just judge. Go through Revelation and read about the judge that is coming. Go through Paul's writings and read about the idea that Jesus is the one who will judge all men. Go to Jesus' words in Matthew 24, uh, 25 and read about this idea of him separating the sheep from the goats. He is the just judge. And if you're thinking you're going to get to heaven because you can trick the judge, understand this, friend, you will never trick the judge. But also understand this, that every one of his judgments are just. Every one of them. We like the idea of people going to heaven, and we don't like the idea of people going to hell. We don't like it enough sometimes to actually tell people about hell, but we don't like the idea of people going to hell. But Jesus reveals very clearly that one day there will be a reckoning. And that those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation from their sins will be given eternal life. That that faith will become a reality. What they only knew of in concept or thought will become sight, something that they grasp that is theirs to to enjoy forever. But if if that is true, then doesn't the flip side of that have to also be true? That those who don't spend their eternity... In heaven or with Christ? We often talk about it just in heaven, but there's more to it than that. 
Isn't it also true that those would then, who reject Christ, spend their eternity away from Christ? We, we often talk of this idea of hell only in terms of, of the fire. And I, I mentioned this around Easter. And I don't know why we only talk about the fire. We know that there's fire. But what is the greatest hell that Jesus experienced on the cross? Separation. He faced being in a place where the presence of God wasn't. And friend, that's, that's the true understanding or definition of hell. Being in a place where God is not. Being separated from God forever. And so while he is the one who forgives sins, he is also the just judge. And friend, if you're here today and you have not made amends with this just judge by believing that he is also the forgiving Savior, then you are also in danger of eternal damnation. But Jesus says again, come unto me and I'll give you rest. So as we think to this passage in Mark, as we understand who Jesus is, we understand that Jesus identifies as the just judge, and some will enter into eternal life not on the merit of their works, but on the merit of Christ's works. And some will enter into eternal damnation because they chose to reject the thing that Jesus did for them. The fifth thing, the final thing, is this. Jesus identifies with those who do the will of God. I think that begs the question, does Jesus identify with me? Does he identify with you? See, as Jesus is, is sitting around teaching and as the servant comes in or whoever it was, they say, Jesus, your, your family's outside. Jesus, don't you want them to come in? Don't you want to go out and see them? Jesus, your family's here. Jesus looks around and says, no, these are my brethren. This is my mother. These are my mother. Jesus is, is teaching a truth that hopefully impacts each of us, that hopefully causes each of us to look at our own lives because there are so often things that we allow to creep into our lives that are not the will of God. What do we call those things, church? Sin. And so I would ask us today, as Jesus identifies with those who do the will of God, does, does Jesus identify with us? Well, what does that mean to do the will of God, to, to live as he lived, to, to love as he loved, to serve as he served, to submit to the Spirit as he submitted to the Spirit, to make sure the words that we say are, are true and edifying, to make sure that our highest priority is to please the Father in heaven over pleasing ourselves. Jesus says, these are my brethren. This is my mother. For they're the ones who are doing the will of the Father. Now, I would ask you, church, as you think about your life, are you doing the will of the Father? Before we go too far down that road, do we understand that we can, we can appear to do the will of the Father without actually doing the will of the Father? Say, how so? Because there are many people who sit in church on a Sunday and are not here doing the will of the Father. There are many people who, who say they're Christians and yet their lives never reflect the idea of doing the will of the Father. And so doing the will of the Father is not simply 
actions that we perform so that God looks at us and says, yep, they're mine. But what are those actions performed through? First off, it's the power of the Spirit that lives within us. We saw that in Romans 6 on Wednesday night as we talked about being baptized into the death and being risen again with Christ through the power of the Spirit. Now that Spirit indwells us and He enables us. But doesn't Paul also teach about grieving the Spirit and quenching the Spirit? And friend, not everyone who grieves the Spirit and quenches the Spirit allows that to manifest itself on the outside. You can grieve the Spirit and quench the Spirit internally, oftentimes, without anybody else knowing for a long period of time. So I would ask us, are we doing the will of the Father? Not just in ways that other people can see, but are we actually doing the will of the Father with a heart that is submitted to the Spirit of God? Those are the ones that Jesus identifies with. Those are the ones that Jesus calls his brothers and his sisters. Those are the ones that Jesus would cleave to in this moment while he was pushing away those who rejected the will of the Father. And so this is who Jesus is. He identifies with those who do the will of God. He identifies as the just judge. He identifies as the great forgiver. He identifies as the one who binds the strong man, and he identifies with the needy. This is who Jesus is, and when we understand these truths, they are truly life-changing, because when I understand that Jesus identifies with me, and he gives me his spirit to empower me to do the work that he has called me to do, it frees me from this understanding of Christianity that would, that would live with this simple obligation that I have to do it or else. Friend, that's not how God wants us to live this life. He wants us to live with the spirit of joy that God is my father and Jesus is my brother and that I get to do the things that he has called me to do. He wants us to live with this understanding that he alone forgives sins, that he alone is the just judge, and he wants us to take that message to the world. And as we talk about being like Christ, friend, this is what Christ was like. So I would ask us, are we following in his footsteps? Who is, who is this Jesus? If you're here today and you are a believer, can I ask you if you're truly following him? I mean truly following him. Back when I was a teenager, we used to use the term sold out, right? We don't use that term anymore. But are you sold out to Christ? In your heart of hearts, are you sold out to Christ? In your thoughts, are you sold out to Christ? In the words that you speak about others, to others, are you sold out to Christ? In your devotion, your daily devotion, not devotions, but in your daily devotion, are you sold out to Him? Seeking to live for Him alone? If we were there on that day, would we have been outside saying, Jesus, come outside? Or would we have been inside and had Jesus said, you are my brothers, you are my sister? For those of you here today who are far from Christ, meaning that you have not trusted in this Jesus as your Savior, my question is, will you come to him? As we talked about the blasphemy of the Spirit today, Jesus says that's a sin that, that will not be forgiven. 
that will not be forgiven because they have rejected the person of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God that empowered him. And if you reject Jesus and you reject the Spirit, guess what? You've rejected God's means of salvation to a world that he loves. And so will you come to him today? Will you understand yourself as a sinner who has a need that could never be met through your own doing? Will you come to him believing his words that he loves you with an everlasting love? Will you come to him in repentance, believing that he alone is the way to salvation? He's offering it to you. The question is, will you come? In this passage, we see the reality of who Jesus was. He was rejected by those who were closest to him. He was accused of evil on behalf of the religious, but he found satisfaction in doing the will of his Father as he spent time with those who were needy. I wonder, do we behold him as he deserves to be beheld? The big idea, again, was simply this. Answering the question, who is Jesus, will equip us, Encourage us and convict us. And when we fully understand who he is, our hearts will find a stability that nothing else can bring. Why do I say understanding who Jesus is brings stability? Because when you understand who Jesus is, it means that you understand who you are. Do you know why so much of the world lacks stability? It's because they're trying to define themselves. I'll be this this day and that the next day and try this after that and go here after that. Friend, if we just rest in who Jesus is and what he says over us, we will find stability to live the life that he has called us to live. But when we're constantly searching for something to bring satisfaction outside of Christ, we will never be satisfied. It's like trying to draw water from a well that has no water in it. It's pointless. But when we come to Jesus, we'll have stability. And that stability will last through everything that we face in this life. Do you know that trials, trials in life are very sanctifying as long as you approach them with the right heart? And if we approach our trials with the heart of understanding who Jesus is, then we will indeed be sanctified be like him. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would take your word and that you'd do a great work in us. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the the simple truths, God, that you've given us, but also for the, the depth of those truths as we allow them to really influence us. God, I pray that as your spirit has worked in us, God, that, that we would allow him to continue that work. But help us to not have the heart of the Pharisee. But help us to have the heart of the needy who were sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking in everything that he said because there was something about him that they couldn't shake. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. We do pray if there's any here today who've never trusted Christ, that as we sing this song, God, that, that you'd give them the courage to come to the back and that we could show them through the word how they can be saved. God, work in hearts as you deem best. We thank you again. In Jesus' name I pray.